G'day mate, welcome to episode 76 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, we are talking about different training peaks, charts and metrics that can help improve your performance and the training process in terms of the art and the science of training. We also dig into a listener question around zone 2 training on hilly terrain and also if you have started Zwift training during the quarantine lockdown period should you use heart rate or power or is it both let's get into it welcome to the exponential performance podcast Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. G'day mate, welcome to episode 76 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It's so good to have you here. Nick Taylor, how are you getting on this week mate? I am good, thank you. I am having a bit of a recovery week personally this week, so so I'm actually feeling quite good. Uh, Not smashed in, in the hurt box every day, which I have been doing. Nice. Do you find that during recovery week, sometimes you feel tireder? Uh, This is probably not a great week to answer that question because we got a a kitten on the weekend (laughs) um, and the kittens found that it likes to zoom around the house at night time. But in general, you can do, yeah, because you're not active the same. Um, Yeah, so I do notice on a, you know, you might have a two or three days of recovery or a a lower load week. and you do just feel a bit more lethargic um, mm. as opposed to maybe not tired because I feel I find I sleep better, um, but I am more lethargic. So I don't have that same kind of get up and go in the morning because you're not getting up to do a session sometimes or, or so forth. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of comments I get from athletes and something I've experienced myself is that you feel tired during recovery weeks or, you know, lethargic and, and people are like, well, shouldn't I be feeling really fresh now? But I think the thing you've got to remember is that during that recovery week is your body's playing that catch-up, that catch-up game then. So it's recovering from all that all that stuff uh, that you've been doing over the last uh, few weeks. And because you're not active like you usually are, like you said, Nick, you know, your stress hormones aren't the same and, and those stress hormones, that adrenaline, the cortisol, the other things that sort of pick you up and, and make you feel uh, alive or active or good and so when you don't have those cursing through your bloodstream on a on a daily basis then you do feel a little flat as well so it's very normal to feel tired during a recovery week so don't uh don't freak out if that's the case the key thing is that we want to feel really fresh going into our next loading phase um Mm. a little bit off topic uh but i thought i'd ask nick since you brought that up yeah so today we are going to talk for our last episode of the Training Peaks series. Uh, And today I just wanted to talk about a couple of different uh, charts or analytics that you can use in Training Peaks uh, that some don't always get utilized um, as best as they possibly could. So today I wanted to talk about uh, three different, uh, different aspects. And the first one is peak power or peak heart rate or peak pace graphs. So this can be found over on your dashboard. And what it is, is it takes all of the the information from the last however long you set it up for, but you can set it up for say like the last three months, and it'll give you your peak power for 
three uh, i think it does five seconds five seconds ten seconds one minute two minute five minute uh 12 minutes 20 minutes 60 minutes and i think it even goes out longer than that i don't have it right in front of me but essentially what it does is it creates this curve of your peak heart rate or peak power or peak pace whatever you set it up as and what it allows you to do is it allows you to do a couple of things for those people who haven't done a functional threshold power test or don't want to do one because it's not a convenient time uh, or whatever it might be or, or just want a quick easy way to find your functional threshold heart rate or power or speed so that you can then take that and set some speed zones or some training intensity zones a little bit more accurately you can go in there and either take the 30 minute peak or and, and then do your little uh, adjustment uh, 5% adjustment for your functional threshold, power, heart rate or speed or you can go to the 60 minute one and take that and that is actually your functional threshold, heart rate, power or speed right there and you can take that number and chuck it into your training uh, zone calculation. So you don't actually have to go out and do a an, uh, functional threshold test which can be really good if you just want to set things up quickly and as long as you have been doing a wide range of different types of training. So if you've only been doing base training, everything's going to be quite low if you've just set it for the last couple of months because that's only going to take into account those sessions and all of those are going to be relatively low. But if there's a couple of races in there in the last few months, a couple of races, some interval sessions, um, some endurance sessions as well, then it's going to be a pretty good representation of all of those critical powers, heart rates, or, or paces. So it can be useful in that respect. The other thing it can be really useful is, is give you a little bit of a picture of the type of athlete you are. So, for example, for a cyclist, if you have got really high critical powers through those uh, 5, 10 uh, second brackets, but then around that one to two minute mark they really start to fade well potentially tells us that you're a really anaerobic sprinter type athlete or the opposite could be true you've got really good uh, functional threshold power but your powers down at your uh, 10 second one minute they're not very uh, high so it tells us that maybe you're really good uh, aerobic beast so to speak like a time trialist and that if you're a road racer and you always find yourself getting dropped um, in a breakaway or a sprint finish then that's what we need to work on to try and bring those critical powers up down at that other end on Sufferfest which is kind of a, another online training platform Sufferfest have the 4D power analysis and what this does is it does a test that tests your 5, your 5 second, 10 second, 1 minute uh, and functional threshold power. And essentially what it does is it builds that profile around the rider. So that, that idea of testing different power brackets or different heart rate brackets or different speed brackets if you're a runner is a really good way of uh, kind of developing a little bit of a profile around yourself. So that critical power or the peak power, peak speed, peak heart rate um, chart in training peaks you can use that kind of just by default because it's all there because it's been collecting all of those numbers you don't necessarily have to go out and do these specific tests if 
you've been doing a wide range of uh, training intensities in your training at the time. Do you want to say anything about that, Nick? Have you used that before? Uh, I do have a, a skim over it from time to time. Um, the one little, I guess, tip, especially for triathletes, is if you are looking at like a peak pace graph or a heart rate graph, you're going to initially when you uh, open that graph, you're going to see it for all of your sports combined. You need to go into the, the settings, which is the three little lines on the graph itself, and change it to run or bike or whatever you want to look at, because um, otherwise your your pace graph from your biking is going to be way out um, if you're looking at that and thinking it's running type of thing. Um, but I think especially for some for long running, I mean, we often talk about power and, and biking, um, but for running, the, the pace from a long run point of view, especially on a flat surface, um, is a really powerful tool. Um, in terms of keeping that in tra- training intensity in a certain zone, um, because it's not as impact, uh, it's not as impacted by external factors like um, heart rates. So pace for running is a bit like power for biking. So I think that's something that that a lot of runners and triathletes could use a little bit more of um, in terms of monitoring their pace. That's for sure. Yeah, and we talked about it uh, in a couple of episodes ago when we talked about about making sure that your running zones are set up or your running intensities are set up with pacing uh, as well or to change that from pacing TSS to heart rate TSS because if it's on run TSS it's going to be based off your pacing zones and if you haven't got your pacing zones set up then uh, they're going to come out a bit wonky in terms of that TSS so if you want to quickly set up your pacing zones have a look at that peak uh, peak pacing chart, take out that threshold pace, bang it into your training zones, and that'll calculate them around that. The next uh, little thing I wanted to talk about was the metrics function in Training Peak. So there is a function in Training Peaks where you can add daily metrics, like what your resting heart rate was or how many hours of sleep you got, how you're feeling sort of on a scale uh, how you're feeling, what your mood's like, how tired you are, muscle fatigue, that sort of thing. Now, these metrics are super helpful for a couple of reasons. The first is for you to have a think about how you're responding to different training and how your body is reacting to it, and then to track patterns over time because training is not just uh, here's a program do these specific things to these specific numbers and we're going to get a, a result at the end of the day. Tra- the, tra- the process of training is all about here's what we think is going to work, let's go and start doing it and then depending on how you're responding to it, let's make little adjustments along the way. Because even though we base our training advice on the research of what has worked really well for the majority of people, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you in your specific case. Or it might not work for you today, but it might work for you next year in a, in a different way, just based on where you're at, what you're doing, your other life stresses and that sort of thing. So using training metrics alongside all of this other data kind of crafts what we're doing from this, the science of the training and kind of including the art of training. The more information that we have to be able to adjust things, adjust the dials accordingly, so to speak, uh, the, the better. 
because at the end of the day, it's not just a do this and this will happen. We need to adjust it to the individual. And that brings me to the next thing on Training Peaks that I wanted to talk about is the comments section. The comment section. Now, this is probably the one time when comments are really helpful and where you should read all of the comments. Unlike other platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, comments often aren't that helpful on those other platforms and you shouldn't read them. But in Training Peaks, comments are really helpful. And again, we see what your how your body responded or what you did in the session based on your heart rate, your power, your speed, where you went, how fast you went, how fast you didn't go maybe at certain times. But the comments of how you subjectively felt about the session, um, how you felt during it, what you did, the thoughts you had, those things are really helpful from a coaching perspective to then be able to uh, inform what we're doing going forward. Because if you hated the session and you really didn't like it because uh, it was really, really hard, uh, excellent, we'll go. We'll give you three of those next week. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, but it, it does help uh, know where your, your head's at in terms of, in, in terms of the training. Um, if you're, you know, you've done your fifth session of the week and every single one of them has been in the pouring rain, it's a really good indicator to a coach that, well, maybe we can program some indoor sessions coming up because training for that long in, in the wet can start to wear on you physically and mentally as well. Or that during the third set of your intervals, you started to feel a wee niggle in your foot. And that could be a precursor to a stress fracture, but we can't tell that from just looking at your speed and your power or your, your heart rate numbers. Had no idea that you felt a wee niggle in your foot on the third set of your intervals, but we do know that from your comments. So comments can be really powerful. So between metrics and the comment section, we're able to get a lot more information uh, about you and how you're responding to the training over and above just looking at the metrics that are coming in from heart rate monitor or the power meter. The other thing that those metrics and comments are really useful for is next year or the next build-up or three years down the track when you go back to the same race. What did we do? Oh, so we did this, this, and this. If there's no comments, no metrics, there's, there's no context around the sessions. So sure, we did these sessions, but how did they actually go? Were they, you know, did you find them really good? Were they, uh, were they too easy? Were they too hard? Those comments, those metrics allow more information around those things so that we can look back on them and say, right, we did this, but this time let's adjust it. Let's do a little bit more, a little bit less, because last time you felt it that it was too much. And we know that because of the comment section. Nick, anything around those? Yeah, I <clears throat> I quite like the the metric section um, in Training Peaks, especially for people that are monitoring um, HRV. Uh, and I know we've touched on that before, and it might be time to retouch on that at some point. But a lot of the HRV apps that people have will sync up to Training Peaks anyway. So you're putting in your your metrics into the HRV app, and then it's syncing across to your Training Peaks and pops up there as a number, which then you can plot on a graph through one of the uh, the training peak graphs that they produce is a metric graph and you can select HRV as one of those numbers and you can track it over time to see what it's doing. 
and how you are responding to said training um, from a, a pretty accurate measure like HRV. Um, and the other one is weight. So people that are trying to potentially lose some, some body weight for an endurance sport um, through their winter season or their base phase, you know, just taking your weight once a week and plugging it into training peaks can give you a, a really nice way to monitor how things are progressing, how different training loads affect your, your weight. Um, you know, generally your big training weeks, you're going to be trying to eat more to sustain those training weeks. So they're probably not the weeks you want to target for your weight loss. But on your recovery week, you might say, okay, I'm going to reduce my calories a little bit on the training, uh, the recovery week, sorry, to help with that weight um, sort of management component. Um, and then certainly with comments on training sessions, the ones I tend to focus on more are the red training sessions, so the, the sessions that have been missed. Um, if there's a comment in there, oh, yeah, ran out of time, kids got sick, whatever the case may be, um, just so I can know, okay, that's not due to injury or, or poor performance or, or something like that, um, then it's a really nice way just to, to check on, on how people are progressing with different sessions. Um, or like you said, if, if people aren't enjoying a certain session for a particular reason um, and I'm just continuing to reprogram the same sessions and they don't tell me, uh, then it's going to help with decreasing their enjoyment of the training itself. Mm. Yeah, so all of you EPC athletes out there, make sure you put your comments into the comment section uh, for each session so that we know how you're getting on. And for those people that are self-trained or training with another coach, make sure you put your comments in there as well, either for your coach or for yourself, your future self, when you look back on your training so that you can get a little bit more of an understanding about what is actually happening over and above all of the uh, excellent metrics and data that comes out of Training Peaks, um, sometimes those comments are the most helpful things. Because remember, we're not just uh, programming robots. We're not training racehorses. Uh, we're training people who are very multifaceted and complex beings. They're not just you know numbers on a spreadsheet not just heart rates on a heart rate graph or power on a power power meter. Uh, there's a, there's a, the art and the science of training that needs to be factored in there as well. So that's going to wrap up our Training Peak series. It's been a good series. We had some good feedback from people saying that they've really enjoyed finding out more about Training Peaks and what the numbers and everything actually means. So if you've got any other follow-up questions for Training Peaks, let us know and we can always add them into our Q&A section. But speaking of Q&A, we are going to jump over now to a voice message that we got around Zone 2 training. Lewis, your question, please. G'day, Matty. Uh, first of all, been listening to your podcast and think you're doing a bloody good job, mate. Uh, question regarding Zone 2 training from me. Um, I live in a quite a hilly neighbourhood and I find it hard to stay in zone 2 100% of the time due to spiking as I go up, and up a hill essentially. Um, when this happens, is it nullifying the effect of what we're trying to achieve within the zone 2 session? And should I be driving to a flatter area to complete these runs if it is? Cheers. So thanks for your question, Lewis. And remember, if you do have a question that you want answered, send us through our voice message over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 
ask just like Lewis has and we're actually going to send you a free copy of the Performance Temple handbooks as a bit of a thank you for sending in your voice question. So Nick, zone two training when you live in a hilly area, what do you think? Well, first off, it is a great question because so much of, especially New Zealand, um, now I don't 100% know where Lewis is from, but if he's somewhere in New Zealand, he's most likely going to be living near some sort of hills. So a quick recap of what Zone 2 is for those that may be unfamiliar. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, I would recommend you go back and listen to some of the podcasts in the past where we have broken down the zones into what they're actually about. But Zone 2 is our endurance zone, uh, commonly in that kind of 80 to 90% of our, our functional threshold heart rate. Uh, now, we'll base this around heart rate because I believe Lewis is a runner. Uh, I do apologise, Lewis, if I've got that wrong. Uh, so he's most likely using heart rate, um, and I suspect he's probably not using power from his bike, which he's not on. Um, so again, zone two is sort of the pace we can go at for, for hours and hours and hours. Um, we're using a higher percentage of fat for fuel, and we're mostly using our type one muscle fibres, or those slow twitch muscle fibres. So when we're looking to train in zone two, um, we're looking to increase the, the growth of our mitochondrial, uh, oh, sorry, our mitochondria, due to stimulation of those type 1 fibres. Now, increasing the mitochondria growth or the function of these mitochondria basically help us to, to utilise fat as an energy source at a higher intensity. So we're increasing our metabolic efficiency, which is going to benefit us in the respect that if we're using more fat for fuel, we can spare muscle glycogen. So therefore, if we get to the end of a, or towards the end of a race, we have to put in a harder effort to get to the finish line we're sprinting against somebody else, or we have to go up a short rise, we've got that glycogen in our muscles to utilise. Uh, it can help with weight management uh, in terms of using the, the stored fat we have in our bodies, uh, and therefore we're not having to consume the same level of a carbohydrate during a training session because our ability to utilise a fat in those lower intensities is better. And also, we're not having to take on board the same amount of, uh, of food, so therefore reducing any gastric issues that might be occurring from trying to eat too much while we're running. Also increasing or improving the function of our type 1 fibres um, is helping us with clearing lactate from the system. Uh, now this does this through a transporter called MCT1. Now MCT1 is essentially like a mop for lactic acid, so it's popping around, floating around the system, clearing up our lactic acid and taking it back to the mitochondrial to help it be reused for energy. Now you might say, hang on, lactic acid is, is produced when we are exercising at a higher intensity, so therefore it's mostly our type 2 fibres that are producing lactic acid, but our type 1 fibres are responsible for that recycling process um, and helping us actually reuse it. So if we're surging and increasing a bit of lactate by pushing harder and then we're backing off a little bit, our body's actually able to reuse it, so it's not going to build up in the system and sort of stop us from exercising, so to speak. So to get to Lewis's question around when training in, in a zone two session uh, and you're on a hill and your heart rate's rising, uh, should he be running on the flat to basically help keep his heart rate at zone two? Now, the answer generally speaking would depend on how long these hills are. And so if you've got a, a one hour zone two run on your training session, uh, training plan, sorry, you want the average of your heart rate for that one hour to be in your zone two range. So you might start running up a hill and it might only be three or four minutes and your heart rate just rises slightly into zone three and then it's going to 
tail off again. It may even drop into zone one as you start to run down the hill on the other side. But if the average again stays within that zone two across the course of your hour, then that's no no drama. Um, it's it's a heart rate will rise and fall, and it's impacted by a few things. But the average is where we're looking to to keep it for a session. However, if that hill was you know let's say sort of five five minutes or so plus, and the first few minutes you're in zone three, and then as you go further up the hill, you get into zone four and you're getting towards your threshold, that would be the time when I'd be sort of saying, hey, you might want to back off the pace a little bit, maybe even bring it down to a walk if you have to, to bring the heart rate back down, because the aim of that session isn't to produce a whole bunch of lactic acid or lactate. The aim of that session is to be in your endurance zone, you're happily clearing, you're very aerobic, um, but when you're pushing closer to the threshold, you're going to start to build up your lactic acid, and that's going to increase the recovery time for your session. So, again, if your aim of the session is a zone two, then you, sorry, if your goal of your session is zone two, then your aim for that session is enhancing these endurance capabilities through fat metabolism, mitochondrial density, and that, basically that mental ability to maintain a steady state aerobic pace. So you want to keep your heart rate in check based on that. So if it's rising too far, that's when I would say on a hill, slow it down. Um, I do even recommend some of my athletes for longer runs to, to walk up the hills. Um, basically, your heart rate's still going to be in an aerobic zone, but you are still moving up the hill and you can, can go where you need to go. But if your race or your event that you're training for has a lot of flat sections or it's quite a flat run, then absolutely you'd be wanting to drive to a flat area nearby to do some of those longer training sessions. And that's basically more around the ability to run at a, a pace on the flat for a continuous period of time, as opposed to using hills to kind of break, you know, your pace is slowing down, you might be walking, changing the muscle groups and so forth. So it does come down a little bit to what event you're training for, but 100% you don't have to train on the flat to keep your heart rate in zone two. Uh, if you've got an aerobic zone two run to do, you can manipulate your pace uh, to help keep your, your heart rate in that average for the period of time. Mm, good uh, and i guess as well like he asked around like does it nullify the effects of zone two uh if you're running up a hill and you're out of zone two and i mean absolutely because you're no longer in zone two anymore are you so you're not getting the benefits because you're working harder and even though you might be running quite slowly because you're going uphill you know the force generation by your muscles is is higher so there's you know more anaerobic energy contribution because more forces or more works needed quicker to generate the the forward momentum and i think a lot of people get hung up on if i'm not running fast then it's not worth it but to get zone 2 adaptations up a hill like you say nick you might actually have to walk but walking is going to develop your aerobic capacity more than running up that hill kind of fast because at the end of the day if you're running up there kind of fast there's more anaerobic energy contribution which shuts down your aerobic energy production because it can't keep up so it's just anaerobic energy production so the flow of energy is not actually coming from your aerobic energy system which is what we're trying to train so if you don't have a flow of energy through your aerobic energy system or coming out of your energy uh, aerobic energy system then you're not actually training your aerobic energy system at all. And so does it nullify the effect of, of zone 2 training? Absolutely, because you're not actually training that energy system anymore. So 
yeah, ex, ex, ad, adapting that pace is crucial. And like you said, it's kind of like the type of hills. And I even find that those long sustained hills are kind of better because you can get into a like a, a slow rhythm and build on it. It's those real undulating up and down, up and down, up and down where people don't want to slow down and they put in that wee burst to get up over the little rise and they spend their whole time pushing up these little rises, coasting on the way down, pushing up a little rise again, coasting on the way down. And when you look at uh, how much time they've spent in zones uh, afterwards, there's zone three and four quite high because of the little surges. Zone one quite high because of the downhills. Zone two, which is what we're trying to focus on accumulating time in, is almost nothing because all they do is simply pass through zone two on the way down the hill and then on the way up the hill, you know. So I think, uh, yeah, finding finding terrain, and I understand you live in a hilly area, but finding suitable hills that allow you to achieve zone two is pretty important as well. Mm. And not all hills are created equal, are they? They are not, no, no. And certainly, you know, as part of a, a comprehensive sort of training plan, hopefully you've got some zone four sort of threshold intervals in there, and they're awesome to do on a hill because your heart rate gets up high quickly. Um, and so that's the sort of time you want to be pushing the pace up a hill in your zone four and then keep your zone two work in that lower zone two. Um, and don't be afraid of zone one either. Um, you know, zone one's got just as just as good benefit. Don't think it's oh, my heart rate's down quite low. I'm not getting anything from this. Um, if you're walking up a hill at a decent pace um, and your heart rate's sort of on that cusp of zone one, zone two, um, that's just as just as good as, if not better, than being sort of pushing zone three, mid zone four, sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big time. So hopefully, Lewis, that helped answer your question. If it didn't, if we just rambled on, uh, let us know, because often I am guilty of rambling around things, uh, especially when it comes to energy systems and zone training, because I do uh, go off on a few tangents. So send us through any follow-up questions if you need to. And remember, if you do have a question, send us a voice question over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash ask and we will do our best to answer them remember yeah. we will send you a free copy of the performance temple handbook as a way to say thank you so maddie a question for you um, around zone two training and the athletes that you coach or have coached in the past do you find that zone two training is the one that people get wrong the most yeah, I mean, zone two training's hard. Mm. It's not. It's hard because it's not hard. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And it's the one that zone two people struggle with zone two and zone one. Like if you're an active recovery, right? So most people, if you told them to go do a zone one active recovery session and they didn't have a a form of monitoring intensity, so no heart rate monitor, no pace, no power, and you just told them to go out and do an easy active recovery zone one, what they would probably go and do is a zone two session, just from probably from feel. If you told them to go do a zone two session, they they usually end up in zone three because it feels somewhat hard. It feels kind of strong, uh, but you can sustain it for a long time. 
Zone 2 is hard to get right because it's slower than it should feel, and you kind of feel that I should be going faster or that this speed is not doing anything for me. And it is it is hard to get right. And you do have to slow down. You do have to swallow your ego a little bit because if you are going at the speed that you feel that is good and you're huffing and puffing and sweating, which is usually zone three, uh, then it's not actually doing the things that we want to on zone two. So really focus on paying attention to that intensity. Set yourself up for success. Pick terrain that helps you achieve zone two. Like Just like we're talking, it's hard to achieve zone two on hills. It's hard to because you've got to pay so much attention to your pace. You have to consciously walk. No one likes to be seen out walking, uh, especially people that have got, you know, their ego tied up in uh, being an athlete or, you know, training for things. And so set yourself up for, for success when it comes to those sessions. Choose flat roads. I know we've just been talking about you don't have to. You don't have to, but it's, it makes it a lot easier to achieve the goal that you're after. Choose flat roads. Uh, go out by yourself potentially. You know, go out and uh, don't don't go out and go into a roaring headwind because you're going to go absolutely nowhere because your heart rate or your power is going to have to you know come up for you to get any sense of any sense of speed. So zone two is very hard to achieve. Uh, well and people do struggle with it because it it's quite far outside what they're normally used to and i've just done a series uh on youtube on whiteboard wednesday talking about different energy systems and the one i've just covered is the aerobic energy system and over the next two videos i'm going to be talking about the integration of these and how these look um, as a whole and what happens when we when we train at different intensities and we talked a lot about this in episode 55 and 56 when we talked about zone zone two and zone three training but if you are pushing outside of these zones then your aerobic energy system uh, it stops working essentially because your anaerobic energy system takes over and because you're no longer stressing uh, those energy systems the aerobic energy system then we're not getting the adaptations that we're after. So it is really important to to slow it down and to and to work in those targeted energy systems, if that's what you're looking for. If you're just looking forward, looking forward to go out there and get a good sweat on, huff and puff, and feel like you did something, go out and just you know run to how you feel. But at the end of the day, you know we need to be a little bit more strategic because when it comes to training, remember training is the systematic use. Of, of regular exercise to, to move towards a performance goal. So if you're not systematic about what you're doing, you're not training, you're just, you're just exercising. So I'm not too sure if that even answered your question, Nick. I can't even remember what it was. Like I say, <laughs> get off on a wee tangent. No, it does. And it, it's brought up by the fact that every now and then I get questions around this whole idea of sweet spot training. Mm. And sweet spot training, I guess, is generally considered zone three kind of upper zone three yeah and the problem i mean it, like you said you, you get a good workout you feel like you've pushed hard or you've been running fast you're biking fast but it's quite a big stress on the system but it doesn't feel as big a stress as a threshold session mm-hmm. um, but the problem i find is it's such a, a fine line between sweet spot and threshold in terms of the intensity you know zone three if we look at heart rates really 90 to 93 percent of our 
um, threshold heart rate. And now our threshold heart rate measure is, is semi-accurate as a field test, but it's not 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. And then we're expecting to work within this very fine window. Um, and I think it's, it's a great metric or a great tool, sorry, for people that have a short period of time to train for an event. They're coming in with, you know, 10, eight weeks to go, need to get some decent base in. Sweet spot training can help pretty quick. Uh, but it's a, a good way to kind of run yourself down over time by doing repetitive sessions week in, week out as your base training in that zone three sweet spot area. Uh, I mean, you nailed it with that there and that we don't want to be doing sweet spot training in our base phase, yeah. you know what I mean? And like there's not, and I mean, we talk about these different training zones as in like zone two, we kind of talked about this in this episode, like zone two is the only thing we want to be doing. Like don't go into zone three, it's bad. Don't go into zone one, it's, you know, it's not going to be helping you, you know, or whatever it might be. But remember, like, we want to train in all of our training zones at different times. Oh. And the aim, you know, the aim of a zone, long zone two session is, you know, improved fat oxidation or increased, you know, metabolic efficiency, mitochondrial density increase, uh, capillarization. All of those things happen really effectively when you train in zone two at that slower, uh, at that slower pace. They happen in zone three as well, but you get more tired for the work that you put in. So you're, you're putting in more effort for the same results, essentially, as zone two and zone three. But the thing with zone two and base training is you want to be able to do multiple sessions throughout the week to get the accumulative training load. If you do those multiple sessions at zone three, you can't do as many of them because uh, it's a larger load on the body and you get fatigued. So you've got a larger load with no more results that you'd get from a less load and you can't do as many of them. So the accumulative training volume is less. Now, sweet spot training is really important at certain times, especially end of your base phase before you're transitioning into speed, into your speed phase of training. Um, or often it's called the build phase of your training leading into uh, an event. And it's a really effective tool to use to be able to work on, you know, maintaining race pace. So it definitely has its place. But in terms of the whole uh, concept of what we're trying to achieve at different times, we need to use different training zones at training times. And again, I'd highly recommend people revisit episode 54, 55, 56, 57, and 58, and 59, where we talked training zones and broke each training zone down because uh, it is quite a big in-depth topic when you get in and, and start talking about it and that's why i've gone back to whiteboard wednesday and revisited the energy systems on there each energy system in depth and then the integration of these and what happens at different and training intensities and and how the different energy systems respond to that because at the end of the day for endurance athletes for all athletes essentially that's what we're training is, is those energy systems um, as a major part of what we're training. Obviously, there's the neuromuscular and the technical and the tactical and the psychological aspects of what we're doing as well. But energy systems, without our energy systems, we don't go anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating area that's, you know, never... Never easy to get your head around. 
Um, but certainly some of those those podcasts you mentioned, plus the Whiteboard Wednesday, I think do tie it together quite nicely for people that are trying to get a grapple on it. I mean, like you said, it's complex. I mean, it's it's the the essence of life is what we're trying to describe here, like metabolism and the production of energy. Like they're not simple concepts, you know. And what we're trying to do is is ideal. Ideally, hopefully, people are starting to get a grasp on on what what they are and how they help, and what we're trying to do to manipulate them uh, to get what we're after as an athlete. But yeah, at the end of the day, they are quite complex. Uh, but I always endeavour to try and explain them the best that best way that I can and the best way that I understand them. And hopefully, the next two videos that I've got coming out on Whiteboard Wednesday over on my YouTube channel, they go a long way to uh, explaining them. Um, hopefully, let me know what you think. Now, I've got one last question here. One last question. Hopefully we've got time to talk about it. But it came from an athlete who has just got into Zwift racing or riding over the lockdown period. And they said, uh, I looked at all of your videos and podcasts and I see you do a lot about heart rate. And now I've just started Zwift training, which is obviously power-based. What should I use, power or heart rate? Uh, and based on the amount of heart rate information that we talk about and the videos and the podcasts and the articles that I've got out there, do I actually think power is any good or do I just bang on about heart rate because I think that's better? So heart rate versus power, what should you use if you've got both available and you're just getting into Zwift? And I guess I'd uh, preface that with the reason that I have so much stuff out there about heart rate is because it's so available to people. The majority of people um, at the moment or over the last four or five years, majority of endurance athletes have relied on a heart rate as their training intensity guide. Now, power is just another measure of training intensity. Power is a more accurate measure of training intensity when it comes to cycling because it's actually a measure of the work that is done, the physical work that is done, how hard you're pushing on the pedals and how how fast you're spinning those pedals around force times velocity. That gives us our power. Heart rate, on the other hand, is the res your body's response to the work that's being done, if that makes sense. So it's not as accurate for measuring uh, work done as power is. So Zwift, should you use power or heart rate? Well, the first thing I'd say is both of them are very valuable sources of information, and they give us uh, information about different things as well. They give us information about different things. So power gives us that instantaneous work done this is how much work you are doing this is how hard you are working at this very moment in time heart rate like i say is the response to the work happening and there's a little bit of a lag to it as we talked about episode 58 where we talked about vo2 max training as well and how heart rate doesn't isn't really useful for that because of the, the lag that is happens in heart rate so what should we use? Heart rate, power. Obviously, we're going to use power because it's quite accurate or very accurate. Uh, 
but also think about what your heart rate is doing at the same time. During base training and during long, sustained endurance efforts on the bike, heart rate's actually a really good metric to focus on because power fluctuates a lot just because of the nature of it. Heart rate's more steady. So heart rate can be really good to look at when you're doing long, sustained endurance rides. When you're doing speed-focused stuff or power-focused stuff, when you're riding harder or faster, that's where power becomes really helpful because it changes instantaneously and it's very accurate, whereas heart rate lags and it's just a response to work. You might finish your effort and your heart rate's just coming up. So there's a couple of different, uh, different ideas around it. Let's say we're riding along on this particular day and our, and our power is 200 watts and it's feeling really, really hard to sustain that. And you look down at your heart rate monitor and your heart rate is sky high. What's that telling us? Well, potentially telling us that you're starting to get a bit fatigued or there could be outside stress from life. There's more adrenaline in your system and it's making your heart rate skyrocket. So this could be a really good indicator that you need a bit of a rest. If we were just looking at power and we say 200 watts, I can usually do this really easily. Why is, why is it feeling so hard? We don't really know. But if we have heart rate, it gives us a bit of an idea. The other thing is, is we could be holding 200 watts and it feels really hard, but our heart rate is really low and we can't get our heart rate up. And what that tells us is that we potentially have been pushing too hard for too long. And now that we're getting into a little bit more of a, a chronic state of overtraining potentially, where our heart rate is no longer responding to the adrenaline that's being released into our system. Because... When we work really hard, the body releases adrenaline to increase our heart rate, to mobilize fuel supplies, to be able to do the work. And if our heart rate's not responding to it anymore, it's become desensitized to it because it's been exposed to it so often. And so again, that tells us something about what's happening within our body. So while power is the, the gold standard for measuring work on the bike, Heart rate is a very useful tool as well. So the main thing I'd say is use power, but also look at heart rate just to get that, that concept of what's going on. For both of those metrics, though, make sure you go and set your training zones up correctly around them. Because, again, if you're just looking at power, but there's no, but you haven't gone out and one, tested it with a functional threshold power test or gone and looked at your critical power uh, and, and picked out those numbers, then there's no point using power. You know, people say, if I get a power meter, will it make me better? Well, no, no it won't. It won't make you any better at all unless you use it um, strategically. So first thing you should always do is do a functional threshold power test uh, or a functional threshold heart rate test for that matter set your training zones up, and then start using those monitors to train at different intensities to achieve different things. Most people, however, are just going to jump on Zwift 
sign up for the first race that they see and just smash it completely. And if that's the way that you're going to use with, go for it. Bunch of fun. But if you want to use it a little bit more strategically, think about those power zones that you are riding in and what you're trying to get out of each of them. Nick, as someone who is an avid Zwift rider, what are your thoughts around heart rate and power? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of a couple of key things to remember too, especially just on those zones that you're talking about, the FTP or the FTHR, the functional threshold heart rate, is your heart rate zones aren't going to change that dramatically over time. You might find your threshold heart rate creeps up a beat or two, and so your zones just shift a fraction versus your your functional threshold power, ideally that number is going to increase with time if you're training efficiently. So your power zones are going to shift. So it might be that you're in zone three heart rate, but zone four power one week, and then six months down the track, that's not quite the same anymore. So so don't get too caught up on, I'm in zone three on one and zone four on the other, what's going on? Um, they're not going to be identical, um, and they will change over time. Um also with training inside, uh, often I find that the, the start of a, a ride inside feels easier from a heart rate point of view. And then it's the, that decoupling process happens to some extent because of the heat that is generated inside, unless you've got a really efficient way of cooling. Um, I unfortunately haven't had any fans over lockdown in my Zwifting room. I just have an open window nearby. And if there's not enough airflow going on, I get really hot really quickly. Um, and so that raises the heart rate or that perceived exertion effect, um, even though your power is not going to be changing. So that is one effect to take into consideration. And also the type of trainer that you have. Um, so I've been fortunate to play around with a, um, a Tax Vortex, which is a, a wheel-on Bluetooth smart heart rate, uh, Bluetooth power trainer, and then a Tax Flux, which is a, a wheel-off. You put your cassette, cassette, uh, chain around a cassette on the trainer itself. Now with the Flux and the with my wheel off, I find the feel of that trainer to be a lot more specific to what I would be on my bike outside. So therefore my heart rate is higher for the same power that I'm putting out. Take the wheel, uh, sorry, put the wheel back on and go back to my Vortex and it feels a lot easier so I can push a easier power um, or a harder power and my heart rate doesn't go up the same. So there's a couple of differences there that you need to be mindful of with your specific trainer. Um, and I would almost say with the wheel on trainers, really focus on that heart rate. If you can get your heart rate up by increasing the watts, then you're artificially sort of increasing your wattage on Zwift as a gain, but you're getting the workout that you want from a, a heart rate point of view, which is going to be more specific when you go back out on the road. Um, take away the, the indoor training component of it. Um, I think it's a little bit more specific when you're out on the road with power um, versus your heart rate because you don't have that same internal sort of environment causing um, issues. Um, and don't forget too, you know, on a trainer, your bike's not moving unless you've got one of those fancy rock plates. You know, you, there's no upper body work, essentially. You could sit up and push the same amount of power out of your legs. So you don't have the same whole body effect on your heart rate as well to bring that heart rate up quicker. Um, so keep that in mind too for your warm-up. You know, you're trying to keep your core stimulated, hold on to the handlebars, um, and sort of tense the upper body every now and then just to help keep the actual stimulus of biking outside. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like a lot of people who use power outside will jump on their bike indoors and think, far out, I can't get my power up to what it usually is. Like it's so much harder. 
like what's going on and the thing is, is, is exactly the same. 100 watts is 100 watts inside or outside. Uh, given that the calibration of the, you know whatever you're measuring with is the same, obviously. But it's just that perception. Uh, when you're inside, like you said, there's no airflow, and so there's no that there's not no perception of moving forward. When you're outside, that air flows over you, one to cool you down, but it also things move past you, and there's a perception of speed, and you can think okay, I'll push a little bit harder, oh, I'm instantly going faster. Inside, the whole space-time continuum shifts, and you're just in this vortex of suffering and going absolutely nowhere, and it just hurts and hurts and hurts and hurts a lot more. So be prepared for that as well in that uh, it does feel harder. But if you haven't used power outside, then that's probably not going to be a thing. But that's another thing. People sit on their trainer to warm up. They get to the end of their warm-up and their heart rate hasn't even got over 120 beats a minute. Do you know what I mean? Because it, it feels like they're doing something, but they're just there twiddling their legs over. As soon as they you know, click it up a couple of gears, add a little bit of resistance and put some load on them, like, oh, that's actually quite hard. And it's like, well, that's probably what you just go outside and, and warm up at normally. But it feels a lot different when you're when you're indoors. Yeah, and I mean, to touch on, I guess the Zwift racing component of it too. You can change the resistance on your Zwift setup on the computer or the TV or whatever you're using. So you've got the resistance on your trainer that's been applied through Zwift, and you can change the resistance on the Zwift to make it zero to one hundred percent of the actual hill or gradient on Zwift. So if you're going along on a four percent gradient and you've set your resistance to 50, it's going to feel like a 2% gradient. And therefore, when you're going down a hill, let's say a minus 4% gradient going down a hill, it's only going to feel like a minus 2, not minus 4. And so people will manipulate that percentage to enable them to pedal faster going down a hill, so their power stays up, so their speed stays up more, and they get a, a better feel for the race, but it's going to project them further than if you have your resistance set to 100. And so all of a sudden, the minus 4 is minus 4, and you're spinning away frantically and you're competing with someone that's spinning at zero percent so there's a lot of intricacies with the racing side of things um that are very unspecific to actually racing on the road um, mm-hmm. a lot of fun and a lot of you know it's been great for lockdown for people to get together and ride together and have some fun and, and a bit of a a bit of a laugh but don't take it too seriously in terms of thinking oh man i'm going to be completely um sort of out the back of the pack in the next race when we get outside because uh, you might find that you're, you're not compared to some people that you think are flying past you now um, just because they've got a different type of trainer or they've set things up differently or, or something like that. Excellent. And again, a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, heart rate or power, bottom line is whether you're indoors or outdoors, lifting or actual riding, uh, use both. Both of them are important. They tell us different things. Monitoring both of them is helpful. Uh, at the end of the day so thanks for that question uh, and I think Ray sent that in via email so thanks Ray uh, I hope all of your Zwift training has been going well hopefully you don't require it too much longer and you can get back out and well we can get back out at the moment and enjoy the outdoors but there still seems to be uh, this tendency to stay indoors because there is still a lot of stuff happening out there and uh, we can't get back to our normal 
our normal yet. The new normal. That's what people are talking about. The new normal. I don't know about that. The new normal. But we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. All right, mate. Thanks for joining us. I hope you found it useful this week. If you've got any questions, let us know so that we can do our best to give you the good information so you can keep training harder, but most importantly, train smarter. We'll talk to you next episode. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart.